At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Tana and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I speak with celebrity and royal photographer Rory Lewis, who's currently based in LA with his wife. With a background in medieval history, Rory enjoys photographing historical figures and recording people as they are. We talk about his art influences, how he directs his photo shoots, his greatest accomplishments, and much more. Please enjoy. We have an amazing community at photographycourse.net where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, join photography contests, and much more. In our community, you'll also find a 52-week project that will provide you with weekly educational videos and challenges to help you improve your skills on a regular basis. This is an amazing opportunity for you to not only enhance your skills, but also grow your network and have a wholesome experience as a photographer. We're so inspired by the amazing photographs that our members post every day. When you join our community, you'll be able to make new friends and share your progress with a passionate group of people. None of this would be possible without our members' support, so we're very grateful. In order to keep things running, we're offering exclusive membership plans that will give you access to every part of our community and our premium courses. Use the discount code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD to get 50% off your first year as a member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join and use the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD without any spaces to claim your discount. Hi, Rory. Welcome to Great Big Photography World Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Hello, Taya, and thank you very much for, for having me. And uh, I'm Rory Lewis. I'm a royal and celebrity portrait photographer. I've been in the industry now for 20 years, and I work with many different companies, institutions, such as the Royal Family in England, the British government, the military, and also individuals seeking amazing headshots and portraits. Your portfolio is so amazing and 
before I started recording, you told me not to give you any compliments because <laughs> giving your ego another boost, but <laughs> I will still. Well, I, 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 it's strange. It comes from my parents because my, my parents basically never gave me praise. They ne- they would, they would be very sort of minimal with, with their praise. You know, they would, if I would achieve something, there they wouldn't be much praise. And I was, I got used to that. So when I do something amazing or something wonderful, I win something or something, I just say, okay, what's next? You know, it's, uh, so my parents kind of taught me to, to not sort of process the process praise, I think, in a way. So if I give your work a compliment, you'll say, okay, that's great. What's next? <laughs> yeah, that's basically, it's like, for instance, you know, you know, my, my lawyer called me the day, you know, to say, Rory, uh, you know, we got our green card very, very quickly when we moved to America. My wife and I answered the phone. He called us on video and said, oh, you've got your green cards. You've got your green cards. And I said, okay, great. Uh, what's next? You know, but, when, you know, but in the end, my wife had to pinch me and say, Rory, say something, scream or smile. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she had to pinch me a little bit. But yeah, I just said, okay, what's, what's next? You know, it's, uh, for me, it's all about the experience. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you have this mindset. And regardless, I think your work is fantastic. The way that you approach your shoots is so interesting. I went through many of your interviews and it was just fascinating for me to see the way that you work with people. And I think it'll be inspiring for the listeners to find out about as well if they don't know your work already. But the, the first thing I want to dive into is your first professional portrait shoot. Do you remember who you photographed and what was that experience like for you? Uh, for me, I mean, uh, I've always been, when, when I originally began, it was the things that I didn't want to do. When you first start off photographer, you do many different things to to make a living, to sort of, you know, to, to, to move forwards. You know, I would do weddings, I would do model portfolios, I would even photograph product photography and, and things like that. But I would say my first professional sitting of note the one that kind of sticks in my mind the most was that with David Warner the actor I think many of your listeners probably won't know who David Warner is he was an actor who was quite prevalent in the 60s 70s and 80s he was in films like Time Bandits and films like the Titanic where he played the bad guy who kind of handcuffs Leonardo DiCaprio to the to the uh, to the ship as it sinks. But in reality, he was a truly wonderful actor who performed in, in Hamlet in the 1960s at the Bristol Old Vic and uh, one of the most versatile performers I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, as a lover of theatre and film, David was sort of a must for me to, to capture. You know, when I was kind of making a list of those faces that I, I always wanted to photograph, he was at the top. But that sitting was part of a project and I know we're going to talk a little bit about projects uh, as we as we go through through the session but David was was part of a project called Northerners so when I was approaching my 30s um, you know I was 28 and I I met a very beautiful woman on a photo shoot who became my wife I sort of had to change my stars a little bit as a photographer. I gave up a really good job to be a photographer in the first place. I thought to myself, I need to do something to to change things, to make things happen for me. Northerners was an idea I had. And actually, you know, this is another question you're going to ask me, I think, a bit later on about, you know, ideas and where I find my ideas. And uh, I was actually watching Game of Thrones. And uh, there's a great deal of emphasis on where you come from. 
north, south, east, west. And for myself, I'm from Liverpool originally, which is in the north of England. Northerners came about that way. So I determined that I was going to get a pantheon of northern people together and, and capture them, famous northern people. And funnily enough, David Warner was from Manchester, which is not too far from, from Liverpool. So I really set about trying to track him down. I sent letters, phone calls. In the end, my determination was was so fierce that I had a bicycle courier deliver a letter to him while he was at a Comic-Con uh, in London. The I didn't get a response for about two weeks. Then two weeks later, I received a response from, from David to say, OK, I received all your letters and all your voicemails and phone calls to my agency. I will do it. I will do it. Arrived in London, I set up the shoot and David arrived and he was a bit groggy and a bit grumpy because it was a very rainy day and he couldn't find the studio. But then he came in and I was a bit nervous and apprehensive because this was sort of my first major celebrity, you know, someone who is extraordinary as a as a performer and he came down we had a cup of tea and I discussed you know my my impetus behind the shoot and I wanted to capture him as this sort of nefarious character because in the in these movies and shows that he plays he always seems to play the bad guy or the or the sort of oddball character so I wanted to capture something similar in the portrait so I set up all my lights and equipment and I was ready to go and David said instantly oh Rory I'm sorry I can't take flash. I can't. Uh, I just had an operation on my eye, so the flash, uh, you know, won't. Uh, it will affect my eye. So I said, no worries. So I had to reset and set up consistent lighting, and then got ready for the sitting. And he said, Rory, he said, don't direct me. Don't direct me. Now I, I'm an avid director. I love to direct my my subjects and and get them to move and change. And he said, what do you want? So I told him all about this nefarious character thing. So he went away, put his hand on his head for 10 minutes. And I thought, what's going on? Is he, is he ill? Is he not well? He had his hand on his head for 10 minutes. Then he came in front of the camera and I took the picture and it shot number one. So that was it. I had the picture in one shot. I couldn't take any more shots. Literally, I thought, this is amazing. I have the picture. So I just took a few more and I said, David, thank you so much. I have the picture. And then he turned around. He said, you know, Rory, this is the first sitting since Cecil Beaton captured my portrait in 1967. So we hadn't had another sitting in around about uh, 40, 39 or something years, you know, three, three or four decades since he actually had a, had a portrait captured. So with this information and Northerners, you know, was a, this was the beginning of the project, I actually contacted the National Portrait Gallery in London. And I said, well, I've just photographed David Warner. He hasn't been sitting for 40 years. And they said, Rory, we'll have one. We'll buy one. We'll take one. So just by, you know, starting this project, Northerners coming up with this idea, contacting a compelling face, then literally I was in the National Portrait Gallery from the first shot. And then moving on from that, I didn't realize that if you spoke to someone like Patrick Stewart, he would turn around and say to you, David Warner was my hero because he actually performed alongside him when he did his famous Hamlet. So in gaining Patrick Stewart's portrait for my portfolio, that came through again, David Warner. So he always sort of sticks in my mind uh, as, as the first sitting and the success of that sitting you know, still continues to this day. The pictures have been used in, in movies and TV series. That sitting just goes on and on and on. Unfortunately, we lost David just this year, actually. And Patrick Stewart actually wrote his obituary, uh, which was amazing to see. And I actually met Patrick here in Los Angeles. We had a cup of coffee and, and we just spoke about David uh, all morning. Such a, 
a wonderful, uh, wonderful character. But that's the sitting that sticks in my mind. What an incredible story. And what stands out the most to me was, of course, the experience that you had, but also your determination, as you said. You didn't give up on reaching out to this famous person. You were determined. Yep. You shared your idea with him, and he was receptive eventually. And it shows yep. the power of like, and the responsibility of the photographer. We shouldn't be discouraged just because somebody doesn't reply to us immediately. I think in this day of instant gratification, that can be a problem for many people. They want an instant response. I think it's so amazing that you had this experience with David Warren and it's so nice and heartwarming to hear that he gave you all these other opportunities indirectly as a result. And what an amazing portrait experience to have as a core memory as a photographer, right? Something you look back it, on fondly. It is, it is indeed. And it got me into the National Portrait Gallery, which, which, which was another great thing. You know, it's a, it's got one of those most compelling faces. And anyone who's interested in David Warner as an actor, I would recommend two movies. The, the first one is uh, is Perfect Friday, which is about a bank robbery where he plays a member of the House of Lords who's sort of broke. And then the second one I would I would recommend uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, which was a uh, film by Power, the famous American director, and uh, he wanted David so much to actually perform for him in this movie that he uh, he contacted his agent in London. He said, "David, so come to come to come to Arizona, do this movie." So David got on a plane and literally had a panic attack on the plane. So he had to get off. He couldn't fly. He was terrified of flying. So he went back into London. He had a cup of, cup of coffee with John Hurt, and he was talking about the whole thing. And the next minute, he got a phone call from Peckham Powers people to say, what's going on? What's Where Where are you? Oh, I can't get on the plane. I'm too terrified. So Peckham Powers said, right, you still got your suitcase? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, go and get on a boat to Calais. Take a train down to Barcelona. Get on a boat from Barcelona to the Caribbean. From the Caribbean, you'll take another boat to New York. Then you'll take a train to Los Angeles from New York. And then you'll take a car to Arizona. And it took two weeks and he did it. And that was for a movie called The Ballad of Cable Hoax. I do recommend that to people if they're interested in, in David. Oh, amazing. Thank you for those recommendations and great backstories as well. I think when you know the story behind a film or any other kind of art, then it can increase the value of the product. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I, I love hearing anything to do with backstories. I mean, if somebody was telling me about The Godfather, there are so many stories about the original Godfather movie, the, the reason behind this and the reason behind that. And I think everyone's just fascinated in, in behind the scenes these days. Definitely. And I like the story that you had uh, to share about your project, The Northerners. Speaking of personal projects, is there anything that you've been working on recently that has been inspiring you a lot? And what has been the inspiration behind that project? I mean, the, I suppose from my own personal life, it comes from a change of direction. I think that's something that has been on my mind over the past two to three years, you know, with COVID and then the move to here to America from, from England. I kind of changed, you know, from one, we approached a crossroads, I suppose, in my career where in England I sort of was hitting the ceiling. I wasn't kind of moving forward. So, you know, in my mind, I had this project, you know, of what was going on in my own mind, which was all about meditation and decision. So I, it was called Selah. So it's actually on my, my website. You can actually see some of the, the, uh, the shots from, from the project. And it was based on the fact that I would ask the sitters to meditate on a decision. So they would sit there and I would say, well, imagine you're making this incredible decision. You have to sort of jump or you have to not jump all these different things that was given this psychological 
direction almost, like a director of a movie. I mean, to me, photography is, you know, ideally, I imagine myself in a theatre, sitting at the front of the theatre with a camera and watching a performer perform and capturing that performance, except, of course, I'm actually directing that performance as it goes along. So with Salah, it gave me a great opportunity to, to kind of play around with direction and movement, creating these theatrical uh, portraits. And it was all about, I suppose, psychologically what was going on in my mind, about making this huge change. And I thought, why not do a project that kind of echoes what I'm thinking? And uh, that's how that project uh, came about. And of course, my inspiration for lighting always seems to come from Caravaggio, from Titian, from Ribera, from these great artists. And Silla kind of found its foundations in, in those artists. But then uh, I wanted to make it my own, was with my own sort of path in life, as it were, to try and make that into a project. Fascinating to hear about the parallels between your experience and the inspirations that you got that or those ideas from. It's amazing that you direct your models and that you also give them that opportunity to act in front of you. I think that's an interesting experience and maybe something that listeners could get inspiration from because I know a lot of people struggle with guiding their models and they feel awkward having conversations with them. So I think, of course, it takes practice, but also the right technique, as you said. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's all about, to be honest, I mean, I teach workshops. I do. I used to enjoy teaching a great deal. Before the pandemic, I would spend sort of 20%, 25% of my time teaching. So you know, for different you know, uh, companies, different you know, photography stores, and I'd even do my own independent teaching. But then COVID, of course, came along. And uh, from doing around about eight workshops a year, I was suddenly doing zero workshops for two years and uh, it's only recently that I've actually started teaching again here in Los Angeles with Sammy's cameras and doing my own workshops in London I think I've taught about three workshops since uh, since COVID has kind of become less of a problem but I used to love passing that knowledge along and to other photographers I would I would always say you can accomplish more with a cup of coffee and a conversation and a few pictures than you can just turning up, taking lots and lots of pictures and not having a, a great result. So I say to people, just try and work with your subjects and just make them comfortable, break the ice, uh, as it were. I mean, one of the one of the sittings that sort of stands out to me is, you know, when I was working with a, a radio DJ in, in Liverpool, my old hometown, the DJ had a, had a talk show, very famous talk show in the north of England, a chap called Pete Price. And he came into the studio and I, I said, Peter, just just give me the Reader's Digest version of your life. Let's just talk about you for 15 minutes. And he said, when I was a child, I was an orphan. My mother gave me away in the 1950s. And then, you know, it turns out I found her again in the 1960s. And I, my father was actually a Sicilian sailor who had an affair with my mother. That's why I was given away. Then the 1960s, he actually came out. He actually said, I'm gay came out in the 1960s, which was a very difficult time for LGBT people. Of course, it was illegal to be gay, effectively, in, in England at that time. And he used to hang around several bars where other gentlemen would come together and, uh, you know, in, in that time. And unfortunately, the bar was raided and he was arrested by the police. And he was given two options. You can go to a mental institution or you can go to prison. So he had a very torrid early, early life. And when we were talking about this for 15, 20 minutes, he just 
the moment he looked into the camera, I was done within three, four minutes of just capturing the pictures because everything we were talking about sort of resurfaced in his mind. So, you know, I would say to those photographers, just ask them a story. I mean, the main thing I would say, you know, to to photographers out there, you don't need much equipment. You know, that that's the equipment is there. You can you can make something look wonderfully amazing with lighting, with uh with filters, with uh, with uh, gels, with this, with that, and the other. But it all comes down to one simple thing. You are nothing without a compelling subject. It's all about having that compelling story. What well, The reason why people look at your pictures and the reason why they stop is because it's someone who's compelling. So I would say to people, go and reach out in your local community and find compelling subjects, find interesting faces, people who have a story, someone who has a who has achieved something amazing and and that's why I would say to people and then that way people are going to stop they're going to say this is fascinating and then in turn for themselves they're going to be sort of recording their own history you know a wonderful history of that person and the local community and things like that so that's why I would say to people go and find compelling subjects I agree with you and I think this applies to other genres as well something that I've noticed in my own work is when I take photographs just for the sake of taking photos without any feeling, just because I feel like it's an obligation, then I don't like the pictures, no matter how yeah. good they look visually or technically. It doesn't matter how many rules I followed or what lighting I used. I just don't yeah. like them because there's no feeling or emotion there. But yeah. when I do it from the heart, there's a big difference to me in my eyes. And I think you can also feel that as a viewer when you look at people's photographs. As you said, there's just that connection and it's way more powerful than just trying to do things just because you think that's supposed to be the way it's done. Well, it comes down to the, the common factor. It's all almost, uh, you're going to get a phone call. You're going to say, I'm a professional photographer, and you're going to get a phone call or an email, and someone's going to say, oh, I'd like you to take my pictures. I say, okay, I'm going to do an amazing job. I'm going to take your pictures. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And they'll come in, but not necessarily may they be compelling. And this is where projects come into factor. That's why I say to people, go and do projects, because you're going to get paid to do something you're going to make, you're going to do your best. You're going to try and create the best image you can for them, but not necessarily is it going to be compelling. So go and do those projects and find these interesting faces. That's why I'd say to people. And earlier you mentioned workshops. In addition to finding inspiration and uh, receiving constructive criticism from other photographers, what are the benefits of joining a workshop? For me, you know, in terms of workshops, I would say to people, you, you know, when I first started, I'm a self-taught photographer. So for me, it was a great deal of trial and error at the beginning. I would go and hire a studio. I would, uh, you know, work, collaborate with a model and try and create something and try and learn uh, on my own. But, you know, in doing a workshop, you can learn more in one day than kind of messing around for six months in terms of trying to figure it out yourself. So I, I would say to people, you know, want to attend a workshop, my workshops are practical tuition sessions. So, you know, you go straight into my workshop with photographing a model and learning how to use lighting and equipment and uh, getting hands on to create something, uh, something wonderful. And that's what I say to people. I like to just throw people in the deep end and, 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 and do that. You know, in terms of myself, I enjoy teaching workshops because, again, you can get a varied opinion about your work and what you were doing. And you can, you know, collaborate with the students and uh, come up with new ideas and uh, try and teach them uh, your sort of style and method of doing things and hope that they'll develop their own style and method of doing things in the future. 
Yeah, it's. I think the process of collaborating with people is always very inspiring. You, even if you're a professional, you can look at your work from a different perspective. You can see how others view your work and learn something new about yourself, and also in turn help others improve their skills. It's a win-win situation for everybody, in my opinion. Yes, it is. It is. Many of your videos on YouTube feature your models often celebrities, speaking highly of your work and describing the shoot that you had together very positively. What is the best review that you've ever received and why? I think the most compelling review for me, you know, my degree uh, is in medieval history. I think we'll, we may touch on this a little bit later on as, as, we, as we talk, but I love history and the ability to work with historical figures and, and capture them in my, in my own way. It comes down, I'll answer this question in, in sort of with, with two sittings, not not one, if I may, with two sittings. I think the first one was with the, sort of the main one that I would applaud and uh, and pat myself on, on, on the back would be probably Prince Michael of Kent, who is the, the cousin of our former queen and now our, our king. His face is extraordinary. And, and if, if, the, if the listeners want to pop on my website and just Google Prince Michael of Kent, Rory Lewis, they will see a face that resembles a sort of monarch of old, like Edward VIII or Edward VII or the Tsar of Russia. Uh, his face is just uh, extraordinary. And uh, he said to me, he said, Rory, he said, you know, after the sitting, he said, you've captured me like an oil painting. And I think that was sort of the, the best review I have, um, I have ever had. The second, you know, I always mention it would be when I photographed David Cameron. The review didn't come from David Cameron. It came from the people who were actually looking at the image. The image went out in the national press and uh, newspapers because it was all about Brexit. So I actually was photographing an article on, on the Brexit situation in England, which is still causing, you know, a great deal of friction and things like that. So David was the sort of prime minister who instituted the vote. So when I photograph David, I have, when I'm working with politicians or political figures, I have a rule where I photograph them in a very plain way. So no good, no bad, no joy, no happiness, no nothing, just completely plain. And this is because when you're working with political figures, it's important that you don't promote their ideas or denounce their ideas. I photograph them as a product. So when the picture went out into the paper and online, there was hundreds and hundreds of comments about the, the, the article and the picture. And not one of those comments was directed towards me. And I think that's probably the best, <laughs> one of the best reviews ever, because I achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I didn't promote the ideas of that political figure. I didn't denounce them. And I was sort of just a neutral figure in the argument. Very interesting, especially the second indirect review, let's say, the way that you viewed that. I think it makes a lot of sense and it does reflect your professionalism as a photographer. When working with celebrities and political figures, of course, you need to be a bit more sensitive towards certain things and keeping things neutral makes a lot of sense and I think is the best way to approach this, of course. Well, it's true. My job is not to, my job is to record. That's basically it. You know, that that's the way I consider you know, what I do, I mean, long after I'm dead and gone, I, you know, I hope that one day someone will turn a page of a book or visit the National Portrait Gallery or the National Army Museum in London and see my work and see that it represents that person, you know, as a historical source. 
know something that's a true likeness of that person. And that's simply all I want to achieve as a photographer. You mentioned that you studied medieval history and the history in general. How has this subject affected your work? Well, a great deal. I mean, you know, as I mentioned just previously, to me, it's all about recording a source. So, for instance, you know, a few years ago, I was in Studio City uh, here in in in, uh, in California, in Los Angeles, and I saw a poster of uh, Syria McKellen that a photographer had captured. The photographer had, had removed Ian's bags, the bags under his eyes. They had, you know, made him look almost like a an immaculate face, his face was just perfect. And I thought, how can you do that? How can you remove Ian's bags? How can you remove the lines and the marks and all those things that make that character, that face? And that's where the history comes into me because I want to be accurate. I want want this to be an accurate source of information for people in the future. You know, in history, it's all about sources. When you are a historian, you look at articles, you look at pictures, you look at paintings and newspapers, and you come up with an argument or you put together something that's factual, something that's interesting for people to view. One of my favorite artists is an artist called uh, Hans Holbein, the younger, who was the first court painter of King Henry VIII. So you can imagine he had a very difficult boss, uh, especially when the king had chopped off uh, several of his wives' heads. So um, Holbein was commissioned originally, and people should look at artists because, I mean, Holbein was a young artist who did projects like any other sort of photographer or painter or writer. They, you, you do projects. And Holbein, he was looking for the most compelling face of his day, and he found Erasmus. Now, Erasmus, as we know, wrote a wonderful sort of uh, religious book that was very famous around Europe. So Holbein knocked on Erasmus's door and said, I want to paint your paint your uh, portrait. So he painted Erasmus. And Erasmus loved the picture so much, he said, here's a letter of introduction. Go off and see my friend, Sir Thomas More, who lives in England, and he will help you out. So he went off to England, he met Sir Thomas More, and he gave him the letter. And he painted Sir Thomas More and his whole family. And then he introduced him to Henry VIII, and the rest is history. So it's almost like a networker. Uh, in terms of who Holbein was. But one of the portraits he created of Sir Thomas More has always influenced my work because when you look at the portrait, you will see that he keeps all the detail. He keeps the three-day stubble of his beard. He keeps the bags under his eyes. All the detail of, of, uh, of Sir Thomas More's face is retained in the image. And this, to me, is important. You know, as a historian, to me, it's all about detail capturing detail and that I think that's that's where it all comes from. I often come across drawings because I like to draw in my free time. When I come across one that is hyper realistic with texture and wrinkles, I'm still compelled to look at it longer than I would at a perfect drawing. Not that there's anything perfect drawings, but as you said with paintings as well, when there is that realism when you see that authenticity, there's just something extra, something very realistic that draws you to that work of art, whether it's a photo or a painting or something else. So I can it's true. For me, it has to be a true likeness uh, of, of the person. Of course, you know, I'm going to bend, you know, I'm going to twist. I mean, you have a client who comes in, they don't like this, they don't like that. Of course, you're going to, to do, you know, to remove this or remove that. But when it's something for myself, when it's my own projects, 
then I'll keep the detail. I mean, these are things that people are going to see long after I'm dead, my own projects. You know, if I was rich man, if I was, if I was a, you know, very rich man, I'm not, I'm a very poor one, but if I was a very rich man, I'd just work on my own projects all day long. But, uh, you know, I try and dedicate as much time as I can to them. Our online photography community is a place where you can grow your skills and learn something new every single day. If you want to join conversations like this one and connect with like-minded photographers from across the world, you're in the perfect place. We have a special discount code for our podcast listeners. We're offering 50% off your first year as an extraordinary or limitless member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code greatbigphotographyworld. If you had an unlimited budget, what kind of project would you work on? I would be sort of looking at, uh, you know, I, w- I love the military and photographing militaries all over the world. Right now, the top project for me would actually be to go to India to photograph the Indian army. When you look at the Indian army, it has this the most uh, remarkable pageantry and their faces and their sort of, you know, they come from India as one of the most diverse countries on earth. It used to be many different kingdoms and, and little sort of principalities and things like that. So I'd love to go to India. If I had the budget, I would go to India and I would do this Indian army project. I think that'd be uh, fascinating. You have worked on military projects in the past. I remember seeing some photos that you took of the military or soldiers in Italy, if I'm I'm not wrong, right? Yeah, I I worked with the British army for five years. So once uh, I completed the Northerners project, you know, I didn't just photograph famous actors from the North. I also incorporated politicians. And I also discovered that the top general in, in, in England was actually from uh, Yorkshire, which, again, was not too far from, from, from where I am and was in the North of England. So I contacted this general and he agreed to sit for me after several sort of trips to London and trying to negotiate doing it. And after capturing his portrait, I was quite fascinated as, you know, a historian. You know, the military, especially in in Britain, the British Army is a very traditional organization that sort of stems back to the 1640s. So some of the regiments, you know, in the British Army are hundreds of years old. Uh, They can trace their lineage back to the the English Civil War, uh, in in essence. And, you know, once I did the the portraits of this general, I wrote to another general and a few other generals. And you know, fortuitously, one of my letters landed on the desk of, of, a, of, a, of a general called General Everard, who was at that time the commander of the field army, very senior military leader in England. And, you know, he loved my work and he, and he helped me to start off a project in England, to, uh, in Britain, to capture the British Army. And I, I went along, I did five sittings with different regiments. You know, we photographed the Gurkhas who were from Nepal. We photographed the the household cavalry who wears the armor and, and rides horses, you know, outside Buckingham Palace. And we incorporated the fact that these are not just ceremonial, you know, soldiers, they're also combat soldiers. And uh, the other thing we discovered is that the army was such a diverse organization. One third of the British army comes from Africa, from Australia, from the Pacific, you know, from uh, Canada, from all over the world to serve in the British Army. And it was fascinating to capture the story of the British Army in the in the 21st century. Now, the project was the longest of my career. It took nearly two and a half years to shoot, and I captured thousands of soldiers. Uh, I dedicated a great deal of time to the project. And 
this is another thing about perseverance that you know I say to to photographers like once you have a project what you do with it and um, this elaborate project that took so long to shoot and, and a, a great personal investment you know in myself uh, I contacted the National Army Museum in London and I said you know I have the only record of the British Army of this of this century would you like it would you want to take it and the museum said no we don't want to take it. And I said, well, you know, that's, you know, you should, you should look at it again. And in the end, they said no. So in the end, I had one of my generals who I'd photograph, write a letter, and I had another general. And I also met the Minister of Defence during the project, and I had him write a letter. And by the time I was finished, they met me again. And they met me by the entrance of the museum, just in the foyer. And they still said no, even after that. So again, I went back to the drawing board and I I discovered that they were doing a um, an armed forces celebration in my own hometown in Liverpool, and a great deal of senior military people were going to come to Liverpool. So, at my own expense, I put on an exhibition in Liverpool of the work, and I invited the generals to come. They flew over to support the project. I invited several people from the government, and fortuitously, one of the people from the museum was actually in Liverpool and came to the exhibition. They saw how you know a success that it was and they said okay we'll we'll do it we'll do something but then a few few weeks later the person who said yes actually got the sack from the museum so i was back to square one so again we wrote letters we pushed it and finally they said yes okay we will do it it'll be for one day and it'll be in the foyer of the museum right near the entrance so i thought to myself you know i'm not not doing well here but we put the exhibition on and it was well supported. Many of the soldiers came, many of the, the senior military leaders came, and the museum saw how uh, you know much of a success it was. Also, the BBC came. I invited them, and they did a great article on the BBC uh, website. And the museum said, "Okay, we'll have this for two weeks now instead of instead of a day." The moral of the story is that after a few weeks after the exhibition, the whole uh, leadership of the museum actually was sacked because they did, weren't representing the museum very well and the history of the army. It was almost like a negative thing. They were representing the British army in a negative way rather than in, you know, in a historical or a positive way. So luckily enough, several of the, one of the generals that I knew was actually appointed as head of the museum. And uh, you know, once he was appointed a few weeks later, I got in touch with him and he said, Rory, we're going to take the whole project and we're going to put it on permanent display which it is. It's at the National Army Museum in Chelsea, in London, and there are over 234 of my portraits on display in the foil centre in the museum. So it almost comes down to you have to climb Everest, you climb it again and again and again until you sort of get to where you need to be in, in photography. It's such a difficult industry, but if you don't have that perseverance and drive and determination, you know, you're going to kind of find it difficult you know it's, it's a hard industry to be in there are more photographers than jobs there are more photographs than museums and this is something you have to deal with yes you have to have tough skin uh, thick skin i mean and you have to be able to deal with rejection and that's always very difficult in just general life <laughs> but especially when you care about something especially if it's a project that you really are passionate about and someone rejects it that's difficult to process sometimes and so if you overcome that then you can reach new heights and you can it is it, it's difficult and now if I start a project if, if you know if I consider a project 
you know, it comes to the point now, you know, because I've done this for quite a while, I, you know, there has to be an end game uh, for me. Uh, there has to be an exhibition. There has to be something at the end of the road. You know, if I start this, you know, is there going to be an exhibition? Is there going to be a show? Is it going to be featured here or featured there? So there has to be an end game. And, you know, in doing projects... And I think that gives you motivation as well and a clear yeah. goal. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you have an end game, if you have something, and then projects show what you can do. I mean, from doing, you know, I mentioned the Salah project, you know, the meditation project, a lot of the people have their sort of eyes closed in this sort of state of meditation in the project. And that inspired brands. I, I've been hired by, you know, JP Morgan. Uh, they booked me to do an investment app uh, called Nutmeg. And uh, a lot of the cities were in the style of this Salah project. So, you know, from, from doing projects, you can actually show, you know, you're putting these things out on Instagram and on the internet. And these big banks and brands of people, they're looking on the internet all the time for something new, something interesting. And doing projects can, can help you to get the work, in my opinion, to fuel the fire and, uh, and, and, and get you the job. Absolutely. And before you became so well-known, you had to send letters to people that you were interested in photographing when you were at that stage, in that stage of your career, how did you present yourself to these people who were often very famous? Because you said that you sent letters and you talked about your projects, but was there a budget or did you just hope that they would be interested in the project and be passionate about it like you? Well, it's, it's various things. I mean, it, it depends what we are doing. In some instances, we've been commissioned to work with celebrities. So, you know, they, they, they come to me. And I will do their, you know, their portraits. In terms of projects, if there's someone I like, yeah, I'll write a letter. You know, I'll, I'll kind of outline my idea and also send them my portfolio, send them pictures of other celebrities, you know, that I've worked with to try and inspire them to, to say yes, you know, to, to, to sit for me. So I would say to people, you know, if you are interested in, you know, having someone famous uh, sit for you, then outline everything, put it in a letter, uh, send us to their agent and hope for the best. That's basically all I can I, I can say. And I mean, for me, if I see see a movie or, you know, for instance, we just watched um, me and my wife watched Star Trek: Picard, and uh, we love one of the the uh, the actors who plays uh, Captain Shaw. That uh, is an actor called Todd uh, Stashwick. So we reached out to Todd, and uh, you know, I think it was on Instagram actually, not even a letter. But we reached out to Todd on Instagram, sent him my work, and I said, "Todd, I'd love to, you know, to, love you to sit for this project." And he came, and he did. And I think that's one of the reasons why we made the move to Los Angeles because many of the actors that we want to reach out to, this is their home, so it makes things a lot easier for us to, to uh, you know, to, to have these compelling sitters. It is a city of actors, you know, and actors are my. Uh, probably one of my my favorite subjects to work with. So I'd say to to the listeners, you know, prepare a letter, prepare an outline, you know, uh, send examples, and that will help you to 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 try and uh, convince uh, you know sitters, you know, famous or non-famous, to sit for you. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialize in wildlife photography and landscape photography. 
I'm a member of photographycourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did and I haven't looked back. If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. I think a lot of photographers give up on even writing someone a letter or sending them a message because they're afraid that it won't be read by their agent. And so they just give up right then and there. When in reality, if you send a compelling message that it might get through to that person, you might be able to work with them. There's that chance. And again, I think it comes down to perseverance, as you said earlier. Well, you should never give up. I mean, it is a hard uh, industry to be. I would say it is the, the, one of the hardest uh, because there are so many people who who are, who you know want to be photographers who want to do this for a living, and in essence, you have to stand out from the rest. And you know, it never terrifies me to meet other photographers. I mean, photography is very competitive, and I've met other photographers who have not been nice, have been very you know standoffish. You know, you bump into another photographer, and they're almost they don't want to talk about their work, they don't want to talk about themselves. They feel that. It's quite a competitive industry, but they never frighten me because at the end of the day, I put 20 years of work in creating my portfolio. It stands there, you know, almost it's, it exists. So for me, I enjoy meeting other photographers because I like to share my ideas and, and different things. But you'll find that photographers don't like to do that. They don't like to share because they are frightened. You know, it's such a competitive industry to be in. But I can say to the photographers out there, the best thing for you to do you know, as I said originally, is to find compelling subjects, find interesting faces. And in terms of the history aspect, you know, I think it's also important to to quote from fine art, you know, in a way. You know, for instance, I was looking at the, the Taylor Westling uh, Prize. It's one of the most prestigious prizes in portrait photography. It's, it's run by the National Portrait Gallery in London. Anyone can enter the competition. But some of the you know, photographers who have won this competition, they've all quoted from from Rembrandt, from Vermeer, from Caravaggio in terms of the lighting and the the way they present the the sitters and the expressions and the clothing and their ideas. It all seems to be quoted from fine art. And I think that's very important that, you know, to understand photography, you must understand fine art. You must have a, an aspect, a grasp of fine art, I think, in your work. And I think when I do my exhibitions, I always enjoy you know, those fine art interested people in fine art that come along and say, this, this reminds me of this or this reminds me of that. And, and that's another thing that I enjoy when, when people come to see my work, that they see the fine art aspect to the images. I think it's nice when somebody understands fine art and sees those parallels and lets you know about it. I think it's very fulfilling and rewarding to know that all that hard work you put into your photograph is appreciated and seen and understood. That's a wonderful gift to have as a photographer I believe. Thank you. When it comes to fine art let's say that someone is a photographer they don't really know much about arts and paintings and history how can they start learning are there any resources you would recommend? Yes I mean I, mean, I, I would look there are several artists key artists to examine I mean I've, I've mentioned Caravaggio several times but I mean from from sort of you know, from Blade Runner to, you know, Ridley Scott to 
all the great directors, they all quote from, from Caravaggio, even The Godfather. If you watch Coppola, you watch The, the, the Godfather movie, um, you see the, the cat, you know, when he's stroking the cat and, uh, you know, the, they're, in, the, they're in, the, in his office with this intense chiaroscuro, this, you know, shadows and highlights. Caravaggio is quoted continuously in art, in movies. You know, he is sort of where I would begin. As, as a, you know, a budding photographer who's interested in fine art, look at Caravaggio, then look at Rembrandt. Look at uh, one of my favorites is a, an artist called Sir Thomas Lawrence. So Sir Thomas Lawrence was a, a British portrait painter and he was commissioned to paint all the famous generals and politicians and monarchs who defeated Napoleon in the Napoleonic Wars. You know, looking at his work, it's just so real. You know, he's a realist you know, they, they keeps all the detail, the lines, the marks. It's also how he presents his work when he photographed a, a member of the royal family or something when he painted a member of the royal family, they would be full length. Then if he was a, to paint a general, it'd be three quarters. Then if he was to, to paint a politician, it'd just be his head and shoulders or their head and shoulders. So he had this sort of style of doing things. But I would say, look at Caravaggio, start there. He sort of inspires a great deal. He was contemporary the way he presented his sitters. If you look at the taking of Christ, which is one of my favorite portraits, he actually painted himself into the portrait. Caravaggio would also use live models, like a photographer would use live models. He would also use a camera obscura to project his subjects against the canvas, and they would paint them very, very quickly. And he would also wait for the greatest moment of drama when he was directing his subjects to to, 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 to actually capture them with his with his paintbrush. So, you know, Caravaggio is a great one to look at, and that's where I would begin. Then I would follow on, have a look at the Caravaggists, painters like uh, Ribera, who followed Caravaggio. Then those, you know, for instance, like Michelangelo, have a look at the, the, the masters, start there, and then move forwards. So that'd be my recommendation. Thank you for these amazing recommendations. Lots of resources to check out, lots of inspiration, I'm sure. And yeah, definitely in terms of lighting as well, just looking at classical paintings is incredibly inspiring, the way that they manipulated light, the way that they saw their subjects. We can definitely learn a lot from that as photographers. Yes. You've achieved so much already as a photographer with 20 years of experience, so many incredible dreams that have come true for you, so many incredible people that you've met. What is your definition of success? Uh, to, to, to keep going, I would say, <laughs> is success. I mean, it's a, but you're never, I don't think it's, you're going to be rich. I think if you want to be a photographer, you're not going to be, could not measure success monetarily in what I do. I think we survive. I think if you're an artist who survives, who can sustain themselves on their art, that is how I measure success. For me, the, the cities, I, you know, I, I work with compelling, interesting subjects. My portfolio, I would say, is a measure of my success. And also the fact that I just do this full time is a measure of success. I think that's a difficult thing for an artist. You know, I know so many artists, actors, painters, writers, poets, and they have to do other things. They work as servers in a restaurant. They you know, have to work in a department store or they have to sell double glazing to make their living. But I measure success by the fact that, you know, people appreciate my work. They love what I do. And uh, I sustain myself from, from that and nothing else. And I think that is a measure of success. As I mentioned, you're not going to be rich doing this. 
But if you can sustain yourself, then that, I think, is a measure of success. Definitely. And it's a goal that many photographers have. And it's amazing that you are an example of that, that it's possible to get to this point with perseverance and passion and a whole lot of patience, I think. Yeah, it is. It's true. I mean, it, you wait. I think one of the, the most, it's very psychological, I think. And I discussed this with a, a friend of mine is a, is an actor, an actor of nearly you know 40 years experience. He's an actor called Tony Amendola. He's very famous. He's been in things like Zorro and Stargate and things like that. And I, we were having coffee in, 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 uh, here in Los Angeles, the, the local cafe from where we live. And, uh, he was just talking, you know, about this. When he was younger, back in the 1990s, uh, there was a time when he didn't work for a year, a whole year, nobody, no phone calls, no sort of movement. And I think that's the psychological aspect of an artist. You'll go, you know, instantly, someone will love your work and you'll be working, you know, with many clients for a month or two months, then suddenly it will stop and you won't get any work. And I think you have to sort of persevere on and I think that's the worst aspect of what we do as actors, musicians, photographers. We wait for the phone to go. We wait for those commissions. And I think it's what you do between the waiting, the projects. And that's what helps you, I think, to move forward. While you're waiting, you, know, you have a camera. You should be out doing something with that camera. You have a project, a compelling face, a story. And at least you're doing something between the waiting very well put and very inspiring, I'm sure, for some people who are listening right now and who are waiting in the process of waiting, at least. It's, it always helps there are other photographers who are waiting, other artists who are waiting. It's not just you, because I think when you're in that, when you're stuck in that process of waiting, then you might feel like you're the only one in the world who feels this way. So I think it helps a lot, too, for people to come together. Yes, I think it, it's true. You're, you're not the only one. I, mean, I think you're, you're right in what you're saying. You're not the only one who's waiting for, for something to happen. I always say to, you know, I mean, I, I haven't given much of a shout out to my to my partner, my wife, you know, Sasha. She is part of my business as well. You know, we work together. We travel all over the world. And you know, I'm lucky that, you know, in terms of, you know, the social media aspect of what we do, she manages our Instagram, Facebook, all our social media. She interacts with the client. She takes bookings. She takes phone calls. She basically manages the whole shoot process, you know, uh, on site as a production director. So, you know, I often don't uh, shout out as much as I should. But, you know, in terms of it's not just me. Everyone seems to think it's just myself who just does this but it's not it's it's a team of, of people the makeup artists we work with the, the set designers the fashion stylists it's almost a collaboration of things but it's not just me it's uh, my wife also works with me that's a nice shout out actually i had to go through your wife before i got to you so i completely <laughs> understand what you mean yeah she's she's the boss as i say she's the boss and uh you know uh, without her in the business i don't think we'd be as successful as we have been over the past few years, uh, Sasha joined my business, our, our business, uh, five years ago and uh, has been a wonderful addition and has really helped to make things happen. No, it's very heartwarming to know that there's someone that you can work with, that you trust, who's your partner and who is there to support you and whom you can also support all the time. It's, it's wonderful to have that partnership in business and in your personal life. Yes, that's right. I have a very generic question. I I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot, but I'm still curious about the answer. Is there someone that you haven't photographed yet that you would love to photograph? 
there are several uh, sitters out there. I mean, it's uh, for me, it's all about capturing history. You know, there's those historical figures out there. You know, it's 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 uh, it's capturing the current moment in time. I think right now, the top of my list, I think in terms of a man of the moment, would probably be Zelensky. I would love to photograph him. I've said to Sasha, I want to kind of cross the Ukrainian border and 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 capture you know, the, this person in, in time uh, that we have at the moment. And that's, for me, it's always about that, the historical time that we live in. I mean, a good artist uh, captures their time. Uh, and I think he would be probably the top of my list at the moment in terms of sitters, because he's sort of this man in the moment. Very interesting answer. A lot of your portraits have this elegant simplicity to them, especially when it comes to lighting. And you have talked a lot about your process, working with models and planning things and your inspiration. When it comes to other photographers' work, what are some common lighting mistakes that you often see? Well, I mean, other photographers have their their own way of doing things. And, um, you know, uh, people can make mistakes. People can uh, use too many lights. People can use too few lights. Um, you know, there are common mistakes uh, out there that, that other photographers that will will make. But I would say to, you know, photographers out there, just start off, if you're just starting off as a photographer, just start with one light and see what you can achieve. Just play around with one light, you know, capture the shadows and the, and the chiaroscuro just using one light and uh, see what you can do with that. And then when you're feeling confident, bring in a second light. But in terms of mistakes, I, I don't really look at that many photographers. This is something that for me as a, as a photographer, I don't look at photographers that often. So I couldn't quote too well on this subject. Well, that's a good answer. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Let's say someone is just starting out as a studio photographer and they can't rent a studio. They don't have a budget for it. Do you think it's okay for people to shoot in their home, like set up a studio in their room? Is that professional? Or well, I mean, it it, it depends. When I first started out, when I first started as a as a young photographer, you know, as a young artist, when I was at university, I would basically uh, use my dorm room. I would basically say to my friends, "Come and let me take your picture," and I just use my dorm room and just practice, you know, in in dorms. You know, it's 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 not nothing uh, bad. You know, I would just practice whatever you have the space. I mean, in terms of my business, you know, many of my sittings, they take place in gyms, in hotel rooms, in apartments. Uh, you know, I go, you know, some of my celebrity sitters, for instance, Judy Dench, when I photographed Dame Judy, I went to her home in, um, in, in just outside of London and, you know, photographed her in a sitting room setting up my studio so a great deal of my sittings they take place on location also when I was you know just starting out as I mentioned I just used my dorm room in university to capture my friends and learn how to to use lights and things like that you know to me a studio is luxury you know as a traveling photographer a lot of my sittings just take place on location uh, I have to take the studio with me so I think it's something that it's a good you know learning factor to use your home, to use, you know, uh, an apartment, even a hotel room, even a, you know, a studio, it's anything, if you, as long as you can find the space to, to capture what you need to capture. That's a good answer. And I like it because as someone who's not a studio photographer, maybe to a professional, that question sounded silly, but I just imagined if I were a beginner, I maybe would feel a bit embarrassed if I invited people over to my home when I had a studio there, but it's good to know 
uplifting to know that that would definitely not be the case. Well, when, when you're a beginner, I think you're working with friends, you're working with family. I think that's when you first start out, you're, you're too nervous to to work with a model or reach out to a stranger. I think that's why it's perfectly fine. When you're starting off, you are, you know, you're working with your friends and your family and you're saying, please, please sit for me, please, you know, let me take your picture. So in that essence, it's perfectly fine. You know, when you start to grow and reach out to strangers or subjects, then, you know, you can go to their home if you need to, or you can rearrange a studio or a neutral location. So these things can take place anywhere. You know, anywhere where you have space and hopefully some power. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people ask you this as well, but I'm sure the listeners are curious about this. What camera equipment do you use? Well, at the moment, it varies. I mean, at the moment, I use the Hasselblad uh, X1D2, uh, which is my camera of choice at the moment. It's a great camera. I mean, I used to be a, a very avid phase one user. I used to have the the Phase 1 XF uh, with the IQ50 back, and I used to use Capture One a great deal. That was my favorite camera, the, 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 the Phase 1 XF. I loved it. I captured so many wonderful moments and portraits on that camera, but it had one flaw which continued throughout, throughout the sort of usage of the camera. Over the sort of seven, eight-year period I was using the camera, the shutter would collapse in the body. It was three parts. You have the IQ back, you have the, the shutter in the middle of the body, and you have your lens. So the shutter would collapse every 10, 15,000 actuations. So in its lifetime, I had it repaired nearly eight times, and I replaced the, the, I replaced that, the actual body of the camera three times. It was just sort of this design flaw that continued with the camera. I called it my camera of perseverance. And then one day I was doing a job for, for JP Morgan and the shutter collapsed on the job. So I had to revert to using a Canon 5D Mark III to finish off the shoot when I, I couldn't tether it up. So it was a bit embarrassing. So I thought I need something more reliable and something more equally uh, as good. So you know, that's where I came across the Hasselblad, the X1D2. Uh, it's mirrorless, it's medium format, so there's no shutter to, to sort of have any issues with. And I've been using that camera now for three years and captured some uh, amazing portraits with that camera. So now I find I've moved into the sort of mirrorless medium format world. And, uh, I seem to be doing very well. It's easy to tether. I use the Hasselblad software focus when I'm working with clients. So I, I would say to clients right now, the camera that I would choose, I would recommend would be the Hasselblad X1D series. Hasselblad is a dream for many. I mean, just the visuals it looks amazing and looks so professional and beautiful. And I'm sure using it is an incredible experience as well. It is, but I mean, you don't need an expensive camera. I mean, I say to people, if I was starting again, you know, I, I when I was you know, first starting out as a young photographer, I was a very poor photographer. You know, it's, um, you know, I didn't have much money. Uh, I had to borrow, beg, plead to, to try and, you know, buy a camera or buy a, you know, stay up to date. And in the end, I thought, why am I doing this? I would use, you know, I would go to a secondhand camera store and I would buy secondhand. I would always stay one or two models behind and, uh, you know, I captured just equally as, as great portraits just on, a, on a, a, an older camera. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, it, it's not your camera that is the most important aspect of 
of what you were doing. Of course, you need a camera to capture a portrait, but nowadays you can capture a portrait on an iPhone uh, or, a, or a, you know, a, an Android phone. You can, you've got a great camera, you know, a great camera on that. It's just all about the fact that you need a compelling subject, you know. And, and I'd finish off in saying, you know, a good artist, as I mentioned, captures their time, captures the compelling, the stories, the faces. I mean, going back to you know, when I was doing the British Army project here in the United States, there was a great problem here for, you know, when Donald Trump was in power, he was criticizing transgender soldiers. There was a great deal of criticism on those who serve, who are transgender. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, well, this is unfair. So I actually went out and I photographed 12 transgender soldiers and captured their story and, and, in doing so, I was capturing my time. And one of the cities I came across was a, was a lady called Deborah Penny. And she was the first person to transition as a transgender soldier in the British Army. And the portrait was acquired by the National Portrait Gallery. It won three prizes. But the simple fact is, I just used a, a Canon 5D Mark II to capture that picture. A Canon 5D Mark II, you can go and buy in a secondhand store for four or five hundred dollars so you know it's it's not about the the camera it's about the subject that's in front of the um, of the camera it's very true i have a canon 5d mark ii and it's definitely an incredible camera that i still I, I still have i still have it sitting in my case downstairs and i have a 5d mark iii they're, they're great cameras you, you, you can't criticize them absolutely my last question for you marie is what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world one of my hobbies, actually, funnily enough, I collect coins and banknotes. And um, I'd, I'd love to see one of my portraits on a banknote. You know, for instance, in England, we have some amazing banknotes like Winston Churchill is on a banknote. Then you have, I think on the 50 pound note, we have a, another famous British scientist. But I'd love my picture to be used uh, as a representation for a banknote. And the other thing I would say, uh, the other thing I would like to achieve is I'd love the next monarch, the next king, to use my picture as their sort of signature, their picture for for um, the coronation, their picture for the, the stamp. That, I think that's that's the kind of the top for me, the, the achievement I'd like to achieve. And you know, in the next you know decade, I'd love to photograph a president here in America, a president of the United States. Something we just came to America over the past year full time. And I think, you know, I'd like to to, to capture that history. Uh, uh, the next president uh, would be great. The next monarch would be great. And I think that's that's my aim at the moment. I think those dreams are all absolutely possible given how iconic your images are. And I, I'm just, I'm not surprised by these answers. I, I know you'll be able to achieve them. Well, fingers crossed, but it's uh, it, it's it's hard. But fingers crossed, but I, ha I have the, put those ideas out to the universe, the universe, and you never know who's listening. <laughs> so I really, really hope that you're able to achieve these things. And given your experience and everything you've already achieved, um, I have no doubt that you'll be able to reach these goals. And Rory, I wanted to thank you for your time, taking the time to speak with me today, sharing your knowledge with the listeners. I really appreciate it, and I wish you the very best with your journey. Thank you very much, Taya, and uh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you found this episode enjoyable. I personally had a lot of fun speaking with Rory and learning about lighting, guiding models, and just presenting yourself as a photographer. If you have any questions for Rory or if you just want to share your thoughts on these episodes with us, 
We would love to hear from you. Make sure to join our online photography community. There's a link to it in the description. See you next week. Our photography community wouldn't be what it is without its amazing members. We're working on many exciting projects and have lots of great perks waiting to be discovered by you. For a small monthly fee, you'll receive all kinds of perks. If you join as an extraordinary member, you'll get an ad-free experience, access to every subforum, access to our 52-week project, the ability to connect with all of our members, and more. As a Limitless member, you'll get all of the perks that I just mentioned and access to all of our premium courses and Lightroom presets. This is the perfect opportunity for anybody who wants to elevate their skills without paying thousands of dollars for courses. We're sure that you'll love being a part of our community if you're a fan of this podcast. In addition to meeting new people, you'll learn something new about photography every day, which will help you improve quickly. It's also much more fun to take photographs when you have a group of amazing photographers supporting you. Go to photographycourse.net to find out more and to get 50% off your first year as a member. We can't wait to see you in our community. And again, just as a reminder, go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD. We can't wait to see you there. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.